If you are able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? The scripture reading for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, and then 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15, and I will be reading from the ESV. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And now, 1 Timothy 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You may be seated. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tom and Lynn, for leading so effectively in our church for many years. Thank you all for honoring God's word. We've been spending this time thinking about the key issue of our day, that uh, the trending cultural narrative is that there's no such thing as male, there's no such thing as female. In fact, there are a lot more than just those two, that there are interchangeable parts, that there's no such thing as the contour of true manhood. Uh, In other words, it's kind of all up in the air just as long as you feel good. And what we've tried to do is to say God's word, far from leaving people confused on this, gives clear direction for our freedom and maximal flourishing for those who are under Christ. And so by way of review, I'm going to take some moments just to go through the story so far, and hopefully we can see it, it's clear and it is a lot more, it's, it will be better for all of us. So first, you'll notice the first page of the Bible, we learn that men and women are created in God's image. I'd say that's one of the key phrases in all the Bible, this notion of being made in God's image. Uh, 
What this means is that every person that we can encounter across this globe, no matter their age or their faculty, that there's something sacred about them because they, they very much are made by God, that God knit them, he gave them life, that he's the source of their being, and so that that's why any Christian, any person who would say, you know, I'm a Christ follower, but then say to, to uh, commit, uh, you know, to somehow be in favor of sexism or to propagate, uh, you know, predatory behavior in the workplace, you, you'd say there's a great incongruity there. Uh, to, to be a Christ follower, to say men and women are made in the age, image of God and to, to be treated accordingly. Now, I would press out of this a further point insofar as you talk to materialistic friends uh, insofar as that if you take the, the, the non-supernatural uh, view of the world, that you just believe there's stuff, the narrative goes something like this. Well, we've all emerged uh, out of the soup by chance. Uh, therefore, you need to love everybody. And I would say that doesn't make any sense. That if you're just operating on a common ancestry naturalism, the logical conclusion of this, which people saw long ago, actually is that you should take advantage of people outside of your gene pool, and you shouldn't really be concerned about people being taken, uh, you know, taken advantage of outside your immediate sphere. That it actually makes a lot of sense to dominate those who you can dominate, because that's the story. And so I would say, actually, this Judeo-Christian idea of the image of God is, is what uh, we all experience by virtue of living in this country. But what our society has done is it's, uh, we live in a kind of cut-off flower age. That we're, we're having the residual effects of God's word on our culture. Namely, we should be concerned about he, people who are being treated, but they cut it off from what gives it life, which is the God who made us all. So once again, men and women are made in God's image, that there ought to be no room in the heart of any Christian to be a sexist or a racist or to be domineering towards other people or cruel to other people, that that's from the first page of the Bible. Now, we also uh, we keep made another move to say, as God made humans, he made them sexually dimorphic, which is a fancy way of saying he made them in two shapes that there are two sexes, male and female, that there are only two. And furthermore, that as these, uh, the male and the female experience intercourse asymmetrically. What am I talking about? Only one sex can be impregnated. That any given woman in the course of her life of fertility, you know, I don't know, you know, 20 to 25 maybe at some point in history, that the number for the lady based on the constitution of her body, uh, there are parameters there, whereas a man theoretically could inseminate, um, you know, could sire hundreds of children given enough spouses. In other words, there's an asymmetrical result of the sex act. You couple with this with the fact that men tend to be physically stronger, not exclusively, but, but oftentimes men are physically stronger. And we just talk openly here, while both sexes can initiate romance, only one sex can initiate the sex act by virtue of their anatomy. So you say, well, yeah, it does look like men and women, uh, when they have intercourse, that there are these asymmetrical results what do we do about that? And God says, well, I've got a wonderful plan for that. It's lifelong marriage till death do you part. 
is one option. There are two options. But one option is to say, I've designed it so that when a man and a woman come together, that the man would then look after his wife, be responsible for the children he's welcoming, that she could then be content in her natural ability to, to have children, and that this is a stable form going forward based on how God made us male and female. Alternatively, a very good option that we have lost sight of in our culture, but we heard about a few weeks ago, is, dare I say, friendship. That men and women can have intimate, non-sexual friendships. It's as if our culture does not even allow that as an option. You know, to say, to be involved with a person of the opposite gender means that all, you know, you're automatically kind of sexually interested. And for that relationship to really actualize, you must have intercourse to say, no, actually men and women can be real friends in a non-sexual way. So God says, look, I, I've made all people in my image. I've made it in such a way where the male and female have asymmetrical results in the sex act. There's a good framework for that, namely lifelong marriage where both parties can come together and flourish or friendship within church, within the family of God. And friends, what this means then is that those who would see, they recognize the asymmetrical consequences of the sex act, but they say, well, instead of doing it God's way, we'll fix it with technology. And what that does, the reason why this is a problem is because that... Um, that effort makes female, the female's natural capacity to have children a problem to be solved. That we look out and say, okay, we all want to you know, have relations with each other, and the problem that we really have to solve is the female's natural uh, fertility. And why that's cruel, and I mean that word strategically, is because it bends the lady's nature back on herself. The problem is your body. You're your own problem. And I think that that feeds a kind of way where we're always, you know, upset with how God made us or constituted us. Again, you see the options to say, but the other side realizes there's an asymmetry, uh, asymmetrical result in the sex act, but it's something to be fixed rather than something to be used to the glory of God. So thirdly then, the principle of complementarity between males and females is anchored in God's original design before the fall. We see this in the sequencing in chapter 2 of how God made the man, that the man being alone is not good, and he gives Eve as a gift, as a companion. So again, biblically speaking, there's a real thing as manhood. There's a real thing as womanhood that the parameters and the roles can be defined. It's not as if, you know, the Lord has blessed me with two sons, eight and five, you know, say, hey, fellas, I, I don't know. It's all up for grabs. Figure it out. I don't know what you are. Do what you feel like. No. To say, you're, you're boys, you're becoming men. This is how a man under the authority of God behaves. Likewise, I would say, boys, one day you're going to get married this is what you, you want in, in, a, in a bride. This is the kind of lady who will be a delight, who you'll be able to do ministry with. So it's not as if, you know, manhood and woman are all up for grads. But God says, no, that there are parameters. Fourthly, again, preface comments here, that God wants and requires men and women to fulfill the cultural mandate that this comes from Genesis 1.28, that the man and the woman come together, and isn't it interesting, you know, you take a step back, say the most obvious thing in the world that these days needs to be repeated, the most obvious thing in the world is that in order to make new people, you need one man and one woman. 
that's how God decides. I mean, you say, well, couldn't just one of us, you know, just decide one day? So I'd like to, you know, have some. Say, no, God designed it in such a way where the, the man and the woman come together and in that act can welcome new life. And I think this is why, again, the naturalistic community is at so much pains to create life outside of that framework. You know, can you do it all artificially, uh, entirely artificially, so we can make men or women unnecessary? Can we do it so we can make a man unnecessary for this or a woman unnecessary for that? And in so doing, do we tamper with our own nature, bending us back on ourselves? So God's saying, I, I've required it, I want it so that men and women can come together and then exercise dominion over his creation, which I think can be extended even beyond marriage. That it seems to me that God made men and women to help each other out of themselves. And together we would bear image as healthy men and women to show what God has done for us in Jesus and the right way to navigate this life. So the cultural mandate comes to men and women embracing their roles under the authority of God and putting that on display. Now, the last week, we extrapolated that out, as the Bible does, not in one place, but in many places. Again, some who, uh, other clergymen who find this kind of thing uncomfortable to talk about would say, well, it's you know, very confusing, it's not very prep. Say, no, it's, it's quite obvious in the Bible that this idea of roles plays out within a Christian marriage. I know there are different sets of circumstances where maybe one spouse is not a Christian. We'll not deal with that today. I'm presuming, say, God says, when a man and a woman who are under Christ come together, that there are roles, there are, again, contours of manhood and womanhood to be played out in the home. Namely, that the husband is to sacrificially lead as the head of his family. This is the principle in the Bible of male headship in the home. Now, I know you say, well, this guy's, you know, haven't we been working the last 60 years to get rid of this kind of idea? Say, that's only if our idea of male headship is telling everybody what to do and then slinking down in the basement to watch things. Rather, what every man should have seen last week is, okay, leadership in the home, far better than the image of the lazy boy chair watching TV. The image is the cross. To lay down your life for your family, to be engaged, to be energetically involved. I used the phrase last week that the men would move towards their families to not retreat, but, but to energetically engage and to sacrifice and show some vitality to provide and protect. That does not mean making more money than one's wife, but certainly your presence in the home is such that I will look after this household and I will protect you and I will do what it takes at my own cost so that this home honors the Lord. And if a man is leading in that capacity, my own anecdotal, again, experience is that, not, I don't mean in my own marriage, but in the church family, is that it, it can be a real delight for a woman to submit to that kind of leadership. To say, as my husband is leading sacrificially, I actually really enjoy supporting him and being his partner and coming underneath him. That's the idea, that the, the woman would support her husband, treat him respectfully and kindly, and as he leads sacrificially, that her temptation, perhaps for some to be to control, or a word that you'll hear men use a lot to, to say uh, na nagging, but rather to resist that, say, no, he's leading sacrificially, providing and protecting, and I'm going to support him, not agreeing with him, not being a doormat, but together, the two of us doing ministry together. How much clearer than the cultural narrative of, interchangeable parts. Now the bad news. The fall, when everything goes bad for humans, the fall is much too gentle a word. It's an absolute disaster. 
one of the first things that Satan attacks before, right after the relationship between the humans and the Lord is men and women. The first thing the man does is blame his wife. That the harmony of the two being together, fulfilling the cultural mandate, having children, ruling together, is immediately the two tend to become enemies. And this again goes beyond a marriage. Look at where we're at culturally. Toxic masculinity, to use that phrase, or the kind of feminine movement that, um, you know, who was it? You know, women need men like fish need bicycles kind of attitude. Um, so the fall puts pressure on men and women so that we talk badly and mistreat one another with the man tending to perhaps dominate his wife or the other direction, become extremely passive and slink off to the garage, and the woman to control and nag her husband and to want to assume the leadership in the home. So the fall puts pressure on men and women so that we see each other as enemies rather than complementary companions on the journey of living out God's command. So, you know, I, I, I suppose that there are some objections here, something along the lines of this. You know, you're trying to take us back to an era where, you know, women were, were very much mistreated in a patriarchal society. And I would say one, one response to this, and it's something deep within, within all of us, including myself, is that when we see a bad example, that there can be a reaction when we see such a painful thing or we've been the victim of such a painful thing, the one thing we tend to do is then we want to throw it all out. So here, let's say, we watch, say, well, there's a bad policeman. Let's get rid of all the police. Um, there's a bad politician. Let's get rid of all the government. Now, you say that's not really the, the right thing to do, even though the feeling, right? We say, well, that's a terrible thing that happened. There are, brothers and sisters, abusive pastors. There have been pastors who've covered up abuse. There have been per, per churches that have been far too patriarchal. I acknowledge all of that. The solution isn't to say God's word has nothing to say about manhood and womanhood. Rather, what it is is to say, no, that, that this, there's God's plan and we need to re-embrace it because that's the best corrective for the abuses. Um, the best thing for a, a one-off bad policeman is not to get rid of the police, but to entrust that there's a whole department of good policemen that navigate the ship. And so it is in a church. It's not say, well, we've got some examples of men b behaving badly and covering those things up. Let's get rid of all of them, but rather to say, let's see what God's word says and live out under the authority of Christ. And once again, I come back to this question of love. All the churches that disagree with our church on this you know, we'll say, you know, we love everybody. We're not like your, your church, they you know, that tells people that they're, you know, there's this kind of right way. You know, we just, we, we love everybody. To which my response is say, which is more loving? To say that there's a God who made you, he gave you your body, he made you just the way he wanted to make you, that you don't have to be ashamed of who you are, that God has a plan for your life, that as you live that out, you'll flourish, or to say to some young lady, you know, your, your body is a real problem, and we gotta fix it in all the ways that we can. You gotta go to all these appointments and turn them back on themselves. To me, that's cruel. So this, God's plan, is the one that is the most loving and offers the most freedom. And I pray that our church will not be ashamed of that, 
but rather to see as we're able to live it out, not just talk about it, but live it out, is a great opportunity for the church where there are a lot of hurting people like the so-called detransitioners who are a broken people who've been misguided. May the church be there to love them and to welcome them after they've, uh, you know, hopefully embraced God's plan rather than the minds of, of fallen men. So now today we'll see, and again, just a natural progression of our thought, is that men and women then have specific roles in the church family. So if you turn your attention back to Ephesians 5, to 33, and you're saying, what's Paul talking about there? And you say, well, he's talking about marriage. You'd be correct, wives and husbands. But then as soon as you see that, he overlaps, for the husband is the head of the wife, marriage, even as Christ is the head of the church. Wait a second here. Now he's talking about the church. Or again, you think in verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, the mystery is profound. Okay, he's talking about marriage, right? And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Wait a second, the church. That's exactly right. What Paul's doing here is, is I've set up the contours of manhood and womanhood in the family. Now that comes into the parallel or the overlapping institution of the church family, that there are roles. He juxtaposes the two. And you'll see this again, not in one place, but in several places, like 1 Timothy 3, that in order to lead in the church, a man must lead well in his home. Well, what, what are you saying here? Well, again, an overlap of male headship in the home and in the church family. So in order to make our way in this, I must be absolutely clear that men and women serve in ministry together that the same man who wrote Ephesians 5 would many places talk about all the women who encouraged him and who were involved in his network of ministry, that we know that there was Phoebe and Chloe and Lydia and Priscilla. So Paul, far from being a sexist, would actually have been uh, quite pioneering in his age to bring women into the fold to say, we do ministry together. The Lord Jesus went out of his way to minister to women. You read John chapter 4. He breaks just about every cultural taboo there by talking to the woman at the well. And what gets under my skin just a little bit, you know, because of my own area that I like to study a lot, the early churches, you'll have people say, you know, Paul is responsible. You know, th this kind of thing is responsible for all the nasty things in the world. You know, that Paul is one of the most sexist people. And I say, time out. Paul was responsible for opening up the entire women's movement. If you read 1 Corinthians 7, he says this. He says, well, in a marriage relationship that we all know that the wife's body belongs to the husband. And I'm sure every, you know, every Roman sitting around nodding his head say, that's the way it is. You know, we've heard this before in Aristotle. But then what he says, he says, the husband's body belongs to the wife. Nobody at Paul's time wrote that way. This is why people like Rodney Stark, the early church sociologist, very good book, The Rise of Christianity, and Tom Holland, not Tom Holland, the actor, I always see, we're going to qualify it, Tom, Tom Holland, the, the ancient church historian, he says, uh, <laughs> there was no better deal ever than the New Testament for women. 
that two-thirds of the early church was women, that they learned that they were made in the image of God, that they had a role to play, that they saw the Lord Jesus ministering to women and welcoming women, and Paul included women in his network, that the, the, the thing that opened up modern society to men and women being treated as equals was the Bible. The Bible's not the enemy of that. The, the Bible gave rise to that. That's what Holland says. It's not secular atheism and, and, and uh, you know, uh, life by chance, but rather the Bible and the ministry of our Lord that opened up the kind of modern understanding that men and women can do life together. So we are for, at Providence, the Bible. We are for women in ministry. Sometimes people come to say, well, what do you think about women in ministry? I want to say, well, I'm for it because the Bible's for it. We do it together. Our team at Providence is currently eight men and seven women. We've recently interviewed two women who, given their uh, life circumstances, could very easily join the team. We could have very easily been nine females and eight males on our staff team. We invest every year in female interns to hopefully show we, we would love it if God would so move that you could serve full-time in ministry, even in a local church in some capacity. There's so much ministry to do for men and women. I teach at the seminary level and the undergraduate level. Every class I've taught, I think six, seven years now, has had females in it. They always enrich the class. We are for men and women doing ministry together. By the way, something that's consistently been on our prayer sheet is that God would raise up more women to lead our women's Bible studies that every quarter are packed out. We would love it if you're so inclined to say, I, I'm a lady. I, I've been theologically trained. I want to serve my church. I have a teaching gift. There's a place for you here to serve and to teach other women. That before us, the Bible is clear that men should exercise godly leadership and headship in the local church. That this is not something that we, again, ought to be embarrassed about or tuck, you know, kind of hide away and say, well, it's there and, you know, let's just pretend it's not. But rather to say it's part of God's good design that that sacrificial male leadership that's active in our homes would play out in the local church. Now, all of us, again, you say, well, it's, you know, Shaw kind of telling women to stay in their lane. We all stay in our lane in the church. That sometimes people come to me with a little, you know, preference in the church, and they'll say, you know, you really need to correct that. I say, look, I'm not Constantine the emperor here. You know, it's not like the word goes out in an email and the whole thing. You say, no, I'm, I'm under your authority that you're members and office holders of this church, that we are all under the authority of Christ. This is why every Sunday or I often say, I'm under God's word. We're all under God's word, and we're working it out together. And the second we leave this, we all have a big problem. So we're under the headship of Christ. Christ leads his church through his word. He leads through his spirit that indwell the people of God, all of you, that you've entrusted and prayed and called elders who have a different level of authority and pastors, and so it goes. In that being said, as we would all have a role to play, that the men are to exercise godly sacrificial leadership in the office of elder pastor. And this too, every time Paul talks about this, is anchored not in cultural whims, but in the transcultural events of the creation. 
Say every, t- 1 Corinthians 11, you know what we, re- the second reading, 1 Timothy 2, in Ephesians 5, you'll find verses in there that come right back from Genesis. In other words, it's not, well, we all know in Greco-Roman society this was the case, but now as progressive Americans, this is the case. No, he's saying this is a, a time-honored, transcultural, universal principle in God's economy that men courageously lead and women play a supportive role as men and women lead in the church together. Now, I don't, again, mean to upset anybody. This is just obvious point, big reading of Scripture. Think about it. Adam and Eve created in a sequence where Adam is set up as the head. God raises up a Levitical priesthood to oversee his temple. The Levites are all men. That the prophets, those who have been codified in the Bible, those whose sayings have been recorded, are men. That Jesus, no, uh, not afraid, as I said, to break cultural boundaries, calls 12 male apostles. That Peter and Paul talk about this to say, wow, I, I, I know that it's hard, but to me it's, it's really permeates. Again, it's not one place, but God's saying men and women do ministry together, but there's a leadership role in God's saving work for, for men to play to, to put that on display for the benefit of both men and women. One more thing we must say here. A common objection is you think, meaning me, Austin, you think women are deficient. That, that you say uh, the, the reason why you preach and the other men preach at our church is you think that women are deficient teachers. I say, no, that, that's anchoring the roles in competence. This is a common, the the roles of men and women are not anchored in ability and competence. They're anchored in God's design. That is in our nature. It's how men relate to other men, how men relate to women, how women relate to men. So it's anchored again in God's design, not in competence. Some will say to me, when we have communion and we have 10 or 12 men come up, they say, well, you've got it all wrong. Having the men up front, you know, you're you're running this patriarchal institution. I'd say it's not, you you know, you think women can't pass the plate, Shaw? Say, no, I, I I, I, it's not a competence-based thing. It's not an ability-based thing. But I do want to show, I'm not embarrassed to show men leading in the church. So in our prayer meetings on Wednesday night, I'm grateful most of the time there are more men. And you know who routinely, the women actually will pray, thank you, Lord, that there are men leading in our church. Thank you that there are men who aren't afraid to show that Jesus is their king, that they can lead courageously and make sacrifices for his sake. And I pray that's the case for our church going forward, that they, this, again, is not something to be tucked on the side, as we'll see in a moment, but rather something to say, no, there, there, there really is this. This is what a man does. This is what a woman does. And as we do that, we'll both be stronger together. Now, common trends, what you're going to find because of our cultural situation is that other churches in our stream like to play around with this because it's, a just, it's just a bit too hot to handle, if you know what I'm saying. And so they'll do this. They'll say, well, what if we preserve elders as men, but then call females pastors? You know, that way we can say, well, it's pretty obvious in Scripture. We have, we have all male elders, but, but we're not weirdos like that. We, we've got ladies who are pastors too. The problem with that, firstly, is that you separate 
what is one office in the Bible? That is the elder pastor. So read Acts 20, 1 Peter 5, where the elders in the church, interestingly, are given a charge very close to what the men are given in charge of their household, that they're to care and protect the flock. Same thing come to the elders who are pastors and shepherds. So you're separating out those offices of elders and pastors in a way I think you have to do gymnastics to the text. But moreover, is you're separating the office from the function. So some, again, will come to me and say, well, you know, pastor means to shepherd. Uh, don't you think a woman can shepherd? Say, I absolutely believe that a woman can shepherd other women. I do. The issue is that when you apply that title, that it communicates leadership in the church, which is something I believe Bible says only a man should do for a host of reasons, not least of which is that there's a real thing that a man ought to be, a sacrificial leader who protects and provides. So again, another thing that you'll see, uh, again, so you'll have, you know, say we're preserving male eldership, but then we call ladies pastors. I think that's doing a disservice, and it feels, again, I don't want to say bad things about it, but it certainly feels to me like an act of cowardice. Uh, but the other thing that I would bring up is that others will say they'll have an elder board who's all men, and uh, they're really a personnel committee. They're like the business committee, and nobody knows who they are. They just kind of keep them in the back, the top business guys. And then they'll set up another board, they'll call it like the board of minist you know, ministry or something, and that board is made up of men and women, and they act like the elders. They're doing the job description of the elders. So they're, they're skirting the issue that way, saying, no, I, I don't think, I, I, we're not embarrassed of, of this truth. Say there, there's a principle here. Men and women do ministry together. Men exercise sacrificial headship in the home and in the church that that in some way to the congregation is not something I'm up here saying, I know it's there, how can I hide it all from you? Uh, but rather to say, this is God's good plan. Other, other things people do, so well, what if, what if the elders, you know, under the authority of the elders, you know, have female preachers? Can, again, a, a shocking move to, can elders use their authority to nullify God's word? So when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man, which by the way, the most authoritative thing you do in a church is to preach God's word, what I'm doing right now. Can we use our authority to, to nullify that principle? Say, well, that would be a strange interpretation. So, this is why I think God sets this up in such a way so that both men and women, that as we would do our roles and live them out, that both the men and the woman would flourish. And you might be saying, say, why, you know, this is just, just weird. You know, we, we've had many decades of trying to eradicate this kind of thing. I just leave it at this and two closing applications. You saw the first graders up here. And they say, where do I go? What's it, what's it mean to be a man? What's it mean to be a lady? And you're thinking, well, uh, films? Hollywood? Say, take them on a walk at Crocker Park. Nothing wrong with Crocker Park. Say, what kind of narrative they're getting of the images in the stores, what it means to be a young lady? You say, the, the sports domain, uh, there, say this is what a man is, or you know, I know we have wonderful public school teachers, don't take this next comment that way, but say but education departments, they say, well, this is what it means to be a gentleman. I don't think so. I do pray that it is the church. You can follow my sons, dozens of men in our church who lead courageously and sacrificially and energetically, and you interact with them 
and you emulate them as they emulate Christ. And boys, by the way, one day you're probably going to want to get married. Where should you go? You know, you want to, didn't have time to exposit the second reading there, but you notice exactly time, what is Paul pushing off? That, that the women in the church wouldn't be valued for only the way that they look. That all the movies that came out when I was a senior in high school, you know, what the, 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 the women were just objects to be consumed. Where do you confront that? There's such a thing as godly womanhood, and we can be brothers and sisters, and there's a healthy narrative, and it will be on display in a church that honors God's word. And I know this is hard, and I know there are some things today that are very different, but I do believe that that is a good thing and an opportunity in a time where men and women are confused, that the cultural narrative is hurting people, especially, well, young men and young women. And the church has a chance to be different. Say, no, young man, you get in the game. You got a calling on your life. You take responsibility. You provide and you protect. And young lady, you are worth a lot more than the way that you look. And in your church, you're a sister here. And God has a plan for you. And your body is not an opponent for you or something to be fixed. What a better story, don't you think? Psalm 34 Right when Mallory and I were getting married, an older man came and opened his Bible to Psalm 34. And it reads, O oh, magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together. And he said, that should be your ministry together. You and Mallory, you serve together, you exalt Jesus together. Say, I think that's a great call for the men and women of this church. That we are not enemies, we have roles that God made us, gave us our bodies, and together, as we love one another and live it out, we'll exalt him together, and others will be one to Christ. I'll pray. Father, thank you for your word on this. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark on what it means to be a man or a woman, that there, there are tracks here, Lord. And as our culture would say, well, that's unloving, to say, no, actually, this is the place of the most freedom and the most love. It is, it is the hope. And even as we would start to get echoes of just the last 15 years, it, is that as the other story, the, the, the naturalistic stories lived out, that people are in real pain. It's, it's really hurting them in, in a physical way. And so, Father, may our church, again, not be ashamed of roles, of male sacrificial leadership and women coming underneath in a healthy way, and, and that we would really view each other as siblings. Uh, not, not as objects and not as opponents, which is all that we get. That, that we, we were to not like each other. We're out to get one another, and we're only worth, you know, the way we look or, or what we make. To say, Father, may it not be that there is a, a narrative here of family and of roles and of love and of, of calling. And so help us, Lord, to embrace this. And I do pray if anyone's here today who said they've been hurt by this, to say, oh, Jesus has redeemed sinners. He's called us. He's given us a path. Then as we receive him, that we, uh, it's a, a wonderful privilege to be among the people of God. So help us to be different for your sake, to be salt and light, not to be an echo chamber. For Christ's sake, amen.